When I was uh, between the years of five and eight years old, my family and I lived in a place called Hump Tulips. Anyone been there? Driven through? Look, oh, that's surprising. To quote Luke Skywalker, if there's a bright center of the universe, Hump Tulips just may be the system furthest from it. I'm pretty sure it rains almost every single day in Hump Tulips. Anyway, um, when I was six or seven, I don't quite remember, my dad brought home a dog, a hunting dog named Mindy. She was a puppy and she was a beautiful black lab. And if there's maybe a simple way to describe Mindy, it was affectionate with a side of ADHD and caffeine. She was just absolutely nutty. And we had a big yard. We lived on a fish hatchery there. And uh, so the woods in the backyard. And Mindy, and this is my family dogs are always kind of utilitarian. They're hunting dogs. We love them. But they're always outside dogs, right? So we didn't have a dog that lived in the house. So we had a kennel out by the garage. And then during the daytime, Mindy needed to run off steam. So my dad created this runner system with these two poles and a taut wire with a pulley, right? And then uh, a leash that would come down to Mindy's collar. And she would just do these laps. Boom, 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 boom. When I was six or seven, it was my duty to feed Mindy. And I, that it required going, getting the food, taking it across the backyard, and then between Mindy's runner and our backyard was a ditch, just like the size of a ditch on the side of the road, only it was grassy on both sides and a little wooden walkway. So i walk across the ditch, and I would approach Mindy each time, and I would try and put this bowl down by her runner pole, and she would, I, I literally got bloody noses sometimes because she would hit me so hard with her nose and her paws, and she'd be all muddy in the hump tulips mud, which is just a disgusting banana slug infested area. And... So what happened was I hated this job. And I hated this dog jumping up on me. I liked the dog. I just hated this job. And what happened was I eventually started taking the food and I knew, I rationalized, Mindy gets food and water in her kennel each evening. So I would get up to about as close as she couldn't quite touch me. And I would cast her kibble onto the ground. And she would eat it. I kind of felt bad about this, but it was what I wanted to do to not get beaten up by this dog. We came home from church one Sunday afternoon, and Mindy was no more. She had, in her exuberance, leapt up around one of those poles on the runner and choked. And at first I felt completely numb about this, as any six or seven year old might. But within three or four days, I was haunted by a feeling of deep guilt for this dog. And I wanted more than anything to have those days back. And I just thought, how cruel was I to cast this dog's food on the ground? And I wanted to, to endure her scratching and her clawing and her nipping and her pushing on me. And I wanted to put the food down in the right way. And I think after a couple of weeks, my parents noticed that I was exceptionally cruel to my younger brother and sister. And that I was sulking or whatever I was doing. I honestly don't remember. But I do remember a conversation we had. And when my parents asked me, how I was doing, they figured out it was about Mindy. And I broke down and I let it all out, how horrible I had felt about treating the dog that way. I never forget this. And in fact, I'm pretty sure my parents didn't even intend this. But they handled it so well because they listened to my guilt. And my dad never said, it's okay. He never said, it was okay that you cast your food on the ground because he knew that that really upset me that I knew that that was not the best way to love that dog. But then, 
As a good dad, he assured me it was not my fault what had happened to Mindy. And I didn't realize it then, and they probably didn't know it, but as I look back, what they allowed me to do was confess, repent, and be forgiven. You know, guilt is one of the most powerful, crushing forces known to the human race. Guilt has the ability to crush a human spirit almost unlike anything else in the world. Oftentimes we focus on physical injuries and scars. You know, if you walk around with a limp, people know, oh, that person has a hurt leg or a hurt foot or something. If you have a broken arm and you have a cast with all these signatures all over it, you can only use one arm, it's obvious that something is up. But oftentimes we have emotional scars, we have pain that we carry, we have guilt that weighs us down, and we get so used to this internal scarring that we just function as though it's how life is from now on. This evening we're going to look at a passage that deals with the crushing guilt of one of the most notorious sins in all of history. And although we're dealing with a heavy topic with some very tragic outcomes, I assure you that this passage also contains some very good news. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. It goes like this. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor, Then, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it's the price of blood. And they conferred together, with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Lord, thank you for your word, even a difficult word like this one. In fact, I thank you that you saw fit not to leave out difficult words. Because it's the difficult words that often reach us where we're really at. And Lord, as we look at this painful, crushing condition of guilt, I am so thankful that you have an answer for it that is good and life-giving. Lord Jesus, help us to see you as our rescuer and our savior as we work through this passage. And I pray that you would deliver each one who is held captive by guilt or shame today. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we find ourselves in this passage in the middle of what's commonly known as the Passion Narratives. It's 
chapters 26, 27, 28 of Matthew, passion, passion comes from the Latin passio, which literally means to suffer. And suffer Jesus did. So far, as we've worked through these passages, we've witnessed Jesus agonizing in prayer in the garden, where his three closest disciples couldn't even stay up with him and pray for him. Then he was betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve, arrested at night by a mixture of temple guards and Roman soldiers. He was charged, charged with blasphemy in a nighttime inquisition, held at an illegal time and an illegal place, with illegal rules, and accused by false witnesses. During this so-called trial or inquisition, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, one of the inner three closest disciples, was on a trial of his own. And in the courtyard, while trying to listen in on what's going on with Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, denies he even knows the man, three times in a row. Well, our text this evening picks up the story with a time marker. It says, now when morning came, just a little interesting factoid, in the 56th or 7th verse of this chapter, we'll get the next time marker. It's the words, when evening came, and it comes after Jesus has been crucified. Now when morning came, this is important because according to Jewish law, a trial had to be carried out during the daytime. A decision, especially for the death penalty, had to be carried out in the daytime. So even though they basically condemned Jesus the evening before, uh, through that nighttime debacle, they conferred together in the daytime to the, you know, technically make it legal. They decide that Jesus deserves execution, and so they bring him to Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor, because technically, at that time, uh, the Romans were the only ones with the power to actually execute people. Okay. Next week we're going to hear a lot more about that. Uh, James is going to bring us the word uh, on the Roman trial of Jesus. But this evening we're going to encounter, in the next seven verses, Judas. Judas. What do we know about him so far from Matthew's Gospel? Judas was one of the twelve disciples, twelve of the people who were closest to Jesus on the face of the earth. For roughly three years, Jesus or Judas traveled with Jesus, prayed with Jesus, listened to Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, witnessed the mighty deeds of Jesus, gave up whatever life he had before he met Jesus to follow Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. Judas was the treasurer of this band of disciples. He was master of coin. He was in charge of the money. And we know from John's Gospel that Judas had a little problem with greed and that he used to embezzle money from the disciples' purse. We know that soon after Jesus openly declared that he was going to suffer and die, Judas began looking for a way to betray Jesus. We don't know exactly why, but probably some combination of disillusionment, disappointment, Disappointment that following Jesus wasn't in the end going to get him rich and famous and powerful. Because up to that point he thought, man, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. And if he's King and I'm one of his 12 closest followers, man, I'm going to be something. Greed was probably a factor in this whole thing. Although we know it wasn't the only factor. Because as we mentioned several weeks ago when we saw that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, we learned that even back in Exodus, the price of a slave 
was only 30 pieces of silver. Adjust for inflation, and that 30 pieces of silver is a measly sum to betray not only any person, but one of your closest friends, and of course, Messiah himself. As we pick up the story, we read these words. When Judas had betrayed him, he saw that he had been and saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Judas can't shake the reality that he has made a huge mistake. Thirty pieces of silver he has in his possession are blood money. Whatever he would spend those thirty pieces of silver on would be a constant reminder that he had betrayed Jesus. He had to get rid of them. They're cursed. So he goes back to the source of the coins, the priests who had paid him to betray Jesus. And I'm wondering, I'm guessing here, but he's probably thinking something along these lines. If I return the evidence of my sin, I can make restitution for my sin. I can get rid of this money that makes me feel so bad. You ever felt that way? Done something you wish you could take back? said something you wish could un, you could unsay. Maybe you've done or said something and you've tried to make up for it. Seems like the right response. Well, that's where Judas is at. He felt remorse. He felt sorrow. And what's interesting is that in the Greek language, the normal word for repentance is metanoeo. Metanoeo. Repentance means to turn around, to turn 180 degrees. Okay, so if I'm this way, 90, 180, it's completely the opposite direction, right? It's not 270, it's not, all, it's not 360, it's not going back to where you were, it's 180 degrees. 90 degrees to turn away from sin and 90 more degrees to turn toward God. That's repentance. What's interesting is that that word metanoeo is used almost exclusively in the New Testament for the word repentance. But in this passage, that is not the word used for whatever Judas is feeling. The word is metamelomai. And this word means to change your mind or to feel deep regret. It is not the same as turning that additional 90 degrees toward God. It's a, it's a recognition that what I've done is wrong. I wish I, didn't have, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But it's not a, a complete turning to God. Now let me just be honest about what we don't know. And I think it's really dangerous to, to postulate on what other people are thinking when it's not explicit. All right. So what we don't know is really what Judas was thinking or feeling at all. I mean, we know he was sorry. But we don't know all the nuances in his mind. But what we can infer from this text, just judging on, uh, on what he ends up doing and what he ends up feeling, is that we know that Judas was a man crushed by the guilt of betraying a friend. He confesses to the chief priests and elders that he has betrayed innocent blood. That's a kind of a term that's a... It's not a technical term, innocent blood, but it's from the book of Deuteronomy, too, where betraying innocent blood carries the death penalty. So Judas is going to these chief priests, returning the money, confessing, I have shed innocent blood. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Think how bad it is in your own mind if you're 
a friend were to betray you or a, you know, a loved one to betray you. I don't know, you guys probably get sick of me talking about the cultural differences, but how I talk about this honor and shame mentality in Mediterranean culture, especially ancient Near Eastern, there's this honor and shame mentality to where loyalty is such a big deal. If you betray a friend, you are cast out. There's no... Well, there's no like still being friends with the other friends in your circle. Like everybody disowns you. So Judas has realized he has betrayed Jesus. He's got no life after this. He's betrayed innocent blood. Judas is a man who's realized his sin. I think he's haunted by it. He feels deep regret. And he experiences remorse. I will... that, that's obvious. And... Let's be honest, we can all identify with that to some degree, if not right now, at some point in our life. You've probably had experiences in life where you've hurt someone and wished you could take it back. You may even have relationships in your life right now that tend to bring out the worst in you. And I know in my case, they're usually with people that I'm closest with. Blood relatives, people I see most often. What do you do with your guilt? Be careful. Especially those of you who call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Because what we who follow Jesus, we get in this, oh, I just, I just ask Jesus for forgiveness. And that becomes this private little thing we sometimes do. A quick prayer. Sorry, Lord. And then we get on with our life. We want to we wanna get on with our life. What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our sorrow? I, I strongly believe that guilt, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. In fact, I believe the ability to feel guilt is actually a grace from God. We've all heard the, the story, the analogy of uh, the people with that rare disease where they can't feel pain, right? And we know that kids rarely make it, at least in one piece, to adulthood who are born with this inability to have sensation on their fingertips. Why? Because they have no fear. Because they don't know after, they don't learn the first time not to put their hand on the hot stove. Because it doesn't ever hurt until you start smelling the flesh burn. And, and you, you can go, I, I've sprained my ankle seven times, mostly soccer. And uh, been on crutches a few of those times. And think if you had a sprained ankle and you couldn't feel it. And if you didn't realize it was swelling up, you just keep walking on that thing, wrecking all your ligaments and all that stuff. People without any feeling of pain don't have the luxury of knowing what the boundaries are, knowing there's something wrong. I think guilt is like pain for the soul. It tells us that something is not right. It tells us we need help. But there are four ways, I think, to deal with guilt. And only one of those ways leads to forgiveness. So, Nicole, if you want to take notes. There's four ways. Here we go. Okay. The first way to deal with guilt is to stuff it. And to cover it up with indifference to the world. Or to become uber competitive against everyone who looks at you so that you don't have to feel what's actually going on on the inside. The problem is you can't live that way for very long. Guilt has this funny way of manifesting itself physically. It's going to show up somehow, some way. Hypertension. It'll eat a hole in your stomach and the doctor will say you have an ulcer. But he or she won't be able to tell you why necessarily. Could be that guilt gnawing away. It'll cause chronic anxiety and who knows how else 
it will show up if we don't deal with it. That is not a good way to deal with our guilt. The second way to deal with guilt also leads to a dead end. And it's trying to atone for your own sin. Trying to make things right in your own power. It's what Judah seems to do first. He wants to just give the money back. He wants to make it right. But there are some things that you can't make right. There can be forgiveness. Oh, amen. There can be reconciliation. But we can never totally undo some of the painful things that we cause. You know what I mean, right? Sometimes we disappoint a spouse or a child or a friend and we say things like, I'll make it up to you. I'll make it right. Making amends and restitution is a proper response, but there's another step in true repentance. And that is to receive forgiveness from God Himself. And that's part of the reason I asked Emily and Torin to read uh, sections from Psalm 51. In that psalm, David recognizes that even though he has committed murder and adultery, he's offended Bathsheba and her family, he's offended his country, he has first and foremost sinned against the living God. And that's where David starts the process. He realized that sinning against one of God's image bearers don't ever forget that you and everyone else you see, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is a man or a woman or a child created in God's image. And that gives all of you so much more value than what you can produce or what you did for me last week. Right? So when we hurt someone who is bearing the image of God, someone who God breathed life into, someone who God thought up in His planning, we've offended God first and foremost. The only way to, for, to gain complete forgiveness is by going to God and saying, I've sinned against you. So far, we've seen that you can stuff your guilt, which leads to death. You can try and atone for your own sin uh, through trying to make things right or living a life of self-loathing, which also leads to death. Third, we can fall into despair. And this is what St. Paul writes about in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 7. He writes, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. If you are carrying guilt, it will crush you if you think there's nowhere you can turn to be free. The sorrow of the godly leads to repentance. The sorrow of the world leads to shame. The sorrow of God leads to repentance because it says, I need God to forgive me. The sorrow of the world leads to death because it says, you are unforgivable. Holy guilt actually propels us in hope saying, go to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you. Worldly lies tell us there is no hope. You are an evil person. Or worse yet, do the world a favor. Leave it. 
Unfortunately, Judas goes into despair. And he ends his life. Instead of going to the compassionate judge, Judas becomes his own judge. Which is incredibly tragic. I want to say a word about suicide for a moment. For many of us, suicide is a reality that is all too real. Maybe you have lost a loved one or love someone who's lost someone to suicide. And I know those of you who um, work with the tribes, uh, you encounter this frequently. I want to say something because I feel like to pass over this would be neglectful. But I, I want to mention this. that I am not intentionally making this message about suicide because that's not really what the passage is about. But I don't want to make the topic of suicide some kind of side point and treat it insensitively. So I'm letting you know overtly, I'm not talking about it because I wanted, if I was going to do that, I'd want to do it well. But I also recognize that as we read through this passage, it can raise questions for you. Questions about the eternal security of people who have gone on through suicide. Let me say this. The topic of suicide is incredibly personal and nuanced. There are so many factors, ranging from intoxication, chemical imbalance, received at birth, something people can't help, to clinical depression, to the demonic. And it's my conviction that the God of grace who himself became flesh and died for the world will judge graciously, and compassionately, he knows the heart and intentions of the will, and he will do what is most loving every time. And I also want to say, if this passage has brought up something for you that you'd like to talk about at a later time, I would love to do that. So what do we do with guilt? If stuffing it inside is not the answer... If trying to make it right in our own strength is not the answer, and if despair is not the answer, what is the answer? I think David in Psalm 51 gets it right. It's a turning to God. Let me ask you this. If you have a major plumbing problem, and you're not a plumber, who do you call? Who do you call? He did it himself. I'm talking about, yeah, but you want to jump right. You call Marshawn Lynch, freaking beacon. That's right. No. You call a plumber, right? If you, got, if you live in like an old house like me and you're not an electrician and you need electrical work done, I call an electrician because I don't want to burn my, my house down, right? And if you need a, an x-ray on an injured leg, let's say, where do you go? Mount Baker Imaging, you go to the doctor, right? It's obvious. There's certain places that we, we tend to turn when we have certain problems. If you are a Jewish person living in Jerusalem around 33 AD and you have crushing guilt on your heart, where do you go? To the temple! To the temple! Why do you go to the temple? Because the temple is the place where the priests are and where the sacrificial system is. And so you would go to the temple to talk to the priests and get some pastoral care. And then they could make a sacrifice for you and atone for your guilt before the living God. That's where you go.
And this is where I have a little extra compassion for Judas. Judas is absolutely responsible for his sin. He's responsible for how he handles himself up until the end. But if he is guilty, then the priests of the temple are more guilty. Judas comes to them with a confession. He tries to give the money back. And how do they reply? What is that to us? See to it yourself. And you know what's kind of interesting? I don't want to make too much of this, but in the Greek language, there's no it, there's no to it in that sentence. So literally, it's see yourself. As if to say, look in the mirror. We're not touching you. This is blatant malpractice. I I get a little angry. As your pastor, I have the humbling and sacred privilege of being with you in lots of amazing circumstances in life at births and deaths and hard times. Some of you shared some very heavy things with me and I hold those dearly inside. But what if you got the courage to share something with me? Something you've been holding in for a long time. You're very embarrassed about it. You come and share me in, in, in privacy and I say, so, deal with it yourself. That's what the priests did to Judas. The representatives of God should have pointed Judas toward God. And instead, they pushed him into deeper despair. I wonder, and this is all speculation, what would Judas have turned out like had the priest acted differently? if he'd been around long enough to see the resurrected Jesus. Because as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of difference between how Judas reacted and how Peter reacted. Peter went back to fishing until Jesus showed up on a beach one day and cooked him breakfast. Alright? Leave you with that. Judas throws the blood money into the temple, but not just into the temple. He throws the coins into the na'as, the holy place. The temple had all these different sections. He throws these coins into the holy place, the place where people believed that only the high priest could go and that God Himself, His presence, dwelled. It's a clear judgment on the temple. By throwing this blood money into the na'as, Judas is basically symbolically condemning this whole priesthood in this whole temple system. These priests were so corrupt that they turned away a remorseful sinner, were complicit in the execution of of an innocent man, and yet they knew their Bible so well that they thought, we shouldn't use this blood money to put in the treasury of the temple. We better do something else with it, like buy a graveyard which is unclean for strangers who were very unclean. What a case of getting your priorities mixed up. And just so we don't get on you know, a high horse here, we all do this. Every church, every generation of believers has its things that we're blind to. Let's be in prayer that God would reveal the things that we're blind to. Because we're guaranteed to have our priorities screwed up in one way or another. In this last section, we learn that the priests then take this money, buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Basically, like I said before, they use unclean money to buy a graveyard for unclean people. And Matthew does something strange here. He says they do this to fulfill the words of the prophet Jeremiah. But what's funny is, the words that are in the passage in Matthew are not found in Jeremiah. They're in Zechariah. 
So, does Matthew just like have a lapse here of his, he, he needs a Bible quiz with Elizabeth or something to learn his books of the Bible? I find that hard to believe because Matthew is constantly quoting the prophets. I think Matthew knows his prophets really well. So what is he doing? What's going on? Is this a typo that we picked up throughout history of copying the Bible? Maybe. But... I think that Matthew is probably employing a technique that early writers used to do to cause the reader or the hearer to think. A great example of this is in Mark chapter 1 verse 2 where Mark says he's quoting the prophet Isaiah but in reality he's quoting a little bit of Isaiah and a little bit of Malachi. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to ask the informed reader, the one who knows our Bible, like his audience would, why the heck is Mark doing that? This is from Malachi, not just Isaiah. So they look up the Malachi passage and they realize, oh my goodness, this Jesus is not just who Isaiah was talking about. It's who Malachi was also talking about. That this Messiah, human Messiah of Isaiah is also none other than Yahweh himself coming to visit. Oh, dang, I love Mark. Okay, but... So that's, that's kind of what's going on here, is that Matthew has just attributed a quote from Zechariah to Jeremiah. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because Zechariah speaks of God sending Zechariah, dressed up like a shepherd, to go to the shepherds of Israel who are corrupt. And he has them go in, and, and, and he says, Zechariah, I want you to go to the leaders of Israel, and I want you to reform them because they are evil, they're not caring, they're not shepherding for my people. So Zechariah tries this, tries this. They won't listen. They won't listen. Finally, he just says, "Forget it." I had something else on the tip of my tongue. Uh, so he, he says, "Forget about it. I, I'm out of here. Um, just pay me my wages." So they pay him. How much do they pay him? James, you can't answer. Thirty pieces of silver. Dun dun dun. Right? It's like, oh, this is so good. So they pay him thirty pieces of silver, which is a ridiculously low sum. And Zechariah, what does he do? He throws the coins at their feet. Oh, this is so good. This is exactly right what Judas is. So this is an obvious thing. People would say, Matthew, you're wrong here because that's from Zechariah. But then there's something else interesting going on. If you read Jeremiah 18 and 19, it talks a lot about this potter. God is a potter. Oh, potter, potter's field. And then he says, Jeremiah, what I want you to do is take a piece of pottery and I want you to break it and I want you to hold up the shard from this pot and I want you to tell all the people of Israel, this broken pot is like you. Uh, You've broken my covenant. You know, the people had sacrificed some of their children to foreign gods. I mean, this is an abomination. This is stuff that... God would never sanction. He says, you guys have gone too far. I'm breaking my union with you. Okay? So you're going to be like this broken pot. Oh, okay. So now we get this after the corrupt priesthood, how they treat Judas. We get this reference to God separating himself from the people of God. Ooh, this is an indictment. But then there's something else really cool in Jeremiah. There's a word about a field and about silver buying that field is the same field that's in Acts 1 and it's in this passage, this field of blood. Can you believe that? Jeremiah 32, 6 through 10. God tells Jeremiah, listen, you have sinned, judgment is coming. In fact, the Babylonians are at your doorstep. They are going to sack the city. They're going to kill many people. They're going to drag you on into captivity. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some money and I want you to buy this field 
I want you to buy this field as a remembrance that one day I'm going to rescue you. That your punishment will be up. And I'm going to ask you to buy this field, Jeremiah, because one day grapes are going to grow here again and the wine is going to flow and there's going to be redemption. And I wonder, I just wonder, actually I don't wonder very much, but what I'm preaching right now, is that Matthew has got this mixture of Jeremiah and Zechariah holding this judgment of the temple and the priesthood in one hand and pointing towards redemption and life in the other. Closing the doors on the, on the temple that Jesus cleared out and condemned the corrupt priesthood and saying there's a new way now to approach me. plan has been put into action. But the focus of the rescue plan is not on the temple. It's no longer through the priesthood. The way to rescue is not by rescuing yourself either. The way to be rescued is by putting your trust in the new temple, which is Jesus himself, the one who was sold for 30 pieces of silver and died for you. Jesus is the high priest and when you come to him full of sorrow and guilt wanting to give your coins back he does not say to you deal with it yourself. He is the one who will listen to you who will forgive you who will lead you to the waters of baptism who will take you to the table of communion. He is the one who will help you experience forgiveness through the love of his community the church. He is the one who will fill you with his spirit so that you can be a new creation. Brothers and sisters, what do we do with our guilt and shame? We take it to the feet of Jesus. I invite those of you who are serving communion with me to come forward. And for everyone else, would you just enjoy a moment of silence? And then I'm going to lead us in a communal prayer of confession together.